This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. Hello. Thanks for being here today. We're now at the 40th anniversary of the Academy Awards and the 34th year of the award for Best Song. I'm sure you've noticed a lot of changes in the songs offered up for the movies in the past 34 episodes. And as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, the songs being heard in the movies in the 1960s aren't measuring up to the pop songs that were selling millions of copies, creating superstars out of its performers, and making its creators millionaires. In the first few years of the Academy Award for Best Song, the winning tunes were major hits. White Christmas remains one of the biggest-selling records of all time. When You Wish Upon a Star is still one of the signature tunes for the Walt Disney Studio, and Over the Rainbow has been voted as the best movie song of the first 100 years of cinema. A couple of the songs nominated in 1967 have become classics, but they took some time to find their way into the public consciousness. Academy Award nominations helped, but they didn't provide the immediate boost that it used to. The Academy didn't seem to be looking forward when it came time to recognizing achievements in 1967, but rather looking backward. A new revision to the best song rules indicated that, quote, the song must be heard in the first commercial release print and all prints thereafter, end quote. Meaning that songs that followed the template of More from 1963's Mondo Kane and the title song from 1954's The High and the Mighty wouldn't be eligible anymore because those songs were created after the first theatrical release of the film or were put into special prints to make them eligible. Now the song has to be performed in every print of the film everywhere in the world. No last-minute additions allowed. History was made in the song nominations for 1967 in the form of the first black man to get a nomination in this category. The man was Quincy Jones, who wrote the song The Eyes of Love for the movie Banning with lyricist Bob Russell. Quincy Jones has become a legendary icon in the music business, working his way up to that status after spending the 1950s in Europe with his jazz band. Jones returned to the United States in 1961 to compose his first film score for the edgy film The Pawnbroker. Though the film was widely praised for tackling some risque subject matter, Jones's score wasn't often mentioned. Working as a film composer, he spent time as a producer to Leslie Gore in the 1960s and helped create some of her most popular songs, including It's My Party. Bob Russell was also toiling around Hollywood in the early 1960s, writing lyrics for forgettable movies such as The Girl Most Likely and Blue Gardenia. There isn't much information out there about him, but he did have some early success writing songs for Duke Ellington, including the classic Don't Get Around Much Anymore. The movie that features their nominated song stars Robert Wagner as a disgraced assistant golf pro at a country club. I won't bore you with the details of the plot because it's not very interesting. Based on the song and the opening credits, I expected a love story, but there really isn't one. 
at least not one that reflects the flowing melody and lyrics of the theme song.
The man singing The Eyes of Love is Gil Bernal, who was venturing out into a career as a singer after many years playing the saxophone in the early 1950s and one of the bands that Quincy Jones was playing in at the time. Luckily for Bernal, Jones remembered him when it came time to pick a singer for The Eyes of Love. Bernal didn't get to have the commercial reporting of the song, though. That went to Trini Lopez, who couldn't get the song much radio play or record sales. Like the movie Banning, The Eyes of Love didn't have much of a life beyond its Oscar nomination. But the history-making nomination for Quincy Jones gives The Eyes of Love a little bit of prominence in Oscar lore. Quincy Jones made more history that year with the nomination for his score for the thriller In Cold Blood, based on the Truman Capote book. He became the third black man to be nominated for writing a score, and the first black person to earn two Oscar nominations in one year. There's another nominated song with the word love in it among the 1967 nominees. It's called The Look of Love, and it appears in the spy spoof Casino Royale. This was very loosely based on the Ian Fleming novel Casino Royale, the first novel that featured James Bond. It used elements of the plot to comedic effect, and having Peter Sellers and Woody Allen in the cast definitely made the proceedings more fun, even though critics didn't like James Bond being mocked. One thing everyone liked in Casino Royale was the nominated song The Look of Love, which was written by Burke Bacharach and Hal David on their third nomination in three years. Like the nominated song they wrote for Alfie, this song has a very jazzy feel with a sultry saxophone taking center stage. In the film, it's sung during a seduction scene between Peter Sellers, who's playing an expert at the card game Baccarat, and Ursula Andress, who was the first official Bond girl in Dr. No. In Casino Royale, Andress is a spy for the British agency MI6, looking to recruit Sellers to play Baccarat against the evil Le Chiffre. The song is performed in the first half of the scene, followed by that seductive saxophone as Andrus continues to seduce Sellers. The look of love is in your eyes, a look your smile can't disguise. The look This world could ever say And what my heart has heard Well, it takes my breath away I can hardly wait to hold you Feel my arms around you How long I have waited Waited just to love you Lord Nelson, isn't it? Yes, isn't he beautiful? Yes. 
And do you know what he said? What? England expects every man to do his duty. So he did, yes. But, um, this is Mayfair, Lord Nelson's in Trafalgar Square, surely. No, not anymore. He's mine. Haven't you read the papers today? I don't normally get them quite so early. I get them before they're printed. Oh, well, I suppose you can do anything if you have money. What's great about the scene is that it isn't played for laughs. We don't see Peter Sellers fumbling over furniture as he does when he plays Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther movies. And it is a little strange to hear his normal English voice instead of a French accent or whatever affectation he put into all of his more famous characters. The scene could have been played for laughs with the song being the anchor to it, but it not only allows us to pay attention to the song and to Bacharach's instrumental but to also appreciate Peter Sellers and Ursula Andress just letting the dialogue do the work. Burke Bacharach didn't originally plan to put a song into the seduction scene. It was going to solely be instrumental. Lucky for us that he was convinced to make a song when Hal David submitted lyrics that were irresistible. Dusty Springfield was the singer of The Look of Love, which would become one of the biggest hits of her career. The version that appeared in the movie appeared on Casino Royale's soundtrack album, and Springfield recorded another version with breathier vocals that helped enhance the lustfulness of the song, and it very nearly cracked the top 20 on the U.S. Billboard charts. Bacharach and David were never content to rely on their movie songs to advance their careers. While working on Casino Royale, the two continued to churn out pop songs for Dionne Warwick, and her song, I Say a Little Prayer, was much more popular than The Look of Love, selling more than a million records in December 1967 and January 1968. Ten years into their partnership, Bacharach and Hal David had written more than 100 songs, only a handful of which were made for the movies. It seemed that writing movie songs and composing film scores was a moonlighting gig for these two, and it seemed to be working out well, as I said, with three Oscar nominations in a row. The remaining three Oscar-nominated songs come from original movie musicals, though one of them didn't use a lot of new songs in its score. That movie was Thoroughly Modern Millie, which Julie Andrews chose to star in over reprising her Broadway role as Guinevere in the film adaptation of Camelot. Though Camelot turned out to be the bigger hit, Julie Andrews was able to keep her status strong as the number one box office draw in the United States. Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn had been absent for Hollywood for a while since their last Oscar nominations in 1964. In that time, they had been hired to create songs for two Broadway musicals in 1965 and 1966. The first one was Walking Happy, using all the discarded songs they wrote for the movie Papa's Delicate Condition when it was going to be a Fred Astaire movie musical. The second was called Skyscraper, about... Well, building a skyscraper in New York City. Not very heavy material for blockbuster songs, and both shows failed miserably in the middle of the successes of Bunny Girl, Fiddler on the Roof, Cabaret, and more. All of those shows had an edge to them, especially Cabaret. Walking Happy and Skyscraper belonged in the bygone era of the 1940s, and audiences didn't seem interested in bygone musicals. The writing was certainly on the wall that Van Heusen and Kahn were a victim of the times they were in. 
no longer was the sentimental love song going to cut it in the movies or on stage. Many of their colleagues were feeling it and were branching out into television, where the classical style of music was still being embraced in variety shows and TV specials. By the mid-1960s, Van Heusen and Kahn were admittedly phoning it in. One would argue that they didn't phone it in for the title song to Thoroughly Modern Millie, which earned Sammy Kahn his 20th Oscar nomination and Jimmy Van Heusen his 11th. It fits the time frame of the film, set in the 1920s, and has a catchy jazz vibe to it, not an easy blend of musical styles. And though Kahn resisted the directive to mention the film's title in the movie, he managed to create some catchy lyrics and use the title at the appropriate point. We hear the song twice in the movie. First up is during the opening credits, sung by Julie Andrews as she walks down the street and notices that her hair and wardrobe are not as sophisticated as the other women. The entire song accompanies Millie's transformation into a flapper, complete with a new haircut. Personality, everything today makes yesterday slow. Better face reality, it's not insanity, says Vanity Fair. In fact, it's stylish to raise your skirts and bob your hair. In a rumble seat, the world is so cozy. If the boy is kissable and that tango dance they wouldn't allow, now is quite permissible. So beat the drums, cause here comes thoroughly modern Millie
Everything today is thoroughly modern. Bands are getting jazzier. Everything today is starting to go. Cars are getting snazzier. Men say it's criminal what women will do. What they're forgetting is this is 1922. Have you seen the way they kiss in the movies? Isn't it delectable painting lips and pencil lining your brow? Now it's quite respectable. Goodbye, good goody girl, I'm changing and how. So beat the drums, cause here comes thoroughly Modern Millie is quite fun and a good performance by Julie Andrews, as well as Carol Channing in an Oscar nominated role as a singing and dancing widow. I was a bit surprised to see Mary Tyler Moore dancing like a pro, but that's just because I know her mostly from her TV work and that very straight laced Oscar nominated performance in 1980s Ordinary People. The next original musical sprung from the mind of songwriter Leslie Brickus doing his best to find the success that Alan J. Lerner found in bringing new musicals to movie screens. Brickus, born and raised just outside of London, had been in a very successful writing partnership since the early 1960s with Anthony Newley. You remember them from episode 32, when I mentioned their work creating the title song for the James Bond movie Goldfinger. That successful song convinced Brickus to tackle a full movie musical and it turned out to be one of the most difficult to put on screen. The Dr. Doolittle children's books were popular in the United Kingdom, and the movie was bound to be a hit there. And American producer Arthur Jacobs was sure it could be an international movie success. He actually did ask Alan J. Lerner to write the screenplay, and present some songs with Frederick Lowe. But Lowe was adamantly not going back to songwriting, and Lerner was not a solo songwriter. Since most of the cast and crew were based in England, and with the stories being inherently British, it seemed best to have a British songwriter take over anyway. Brickus had written the screenplays for three movies before this, so it wouldn't be a problem for him to handle screenwriting duties as well. Jacob's deal did not include Anthony Newley as co-songwriter, but Newley was never far away. He got a role in the movie as Dr. Doolittle's friend, Matthew Mugg. From the moment shooting began, the production went well over budget. Star Rex Harrison constantly fought over details with the script and the songs. And the animals were naturally difficult to wrangle for the perfect shots. It's a miracle that the film even finished, and when it did, the critics attacked it severely. The movie made $6 million in its initial release, much less than the $15 million reported budget. 
The biggest miracle of all was that Dr. Doolittle managed to receive nine Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture. But when you look at the other four Best Picture nominees, including Bonnie and Clyde and In the Heat of the Night, Dr. Doolittle was probably picked because the Academy didn't want a slate of adults-only films nominated for the top award. And it got those nominations probably also because 20th Century Fox pulled out all the stops to campaign it as its top film of the year. At least the Academy showed that it would recognize family films, too, even those that stunk up the box office. Among those nine nominations was one for the song Talk to the Animals. If you had some misgivings about the way Rex Harrison practically spoke through his songs in My Fair Lady, you're not going to like the way he basically makes Talk to the Animals as a monologue instead of a song. Yes, Brickus gives him some rhyming words, and music plays underneath, so, technically, it's a song. Brickus wrote in his autobiography that Talk to the Animals was the first song written for the film, emerging from his discovery that Dr. Doolittle and Henry Higgins, the man Rex Harrison played in My Fair Lady, were both lovers of language. He wrote, quote, To this day, I am not sure whether I wrote that song for Dr. Doolittle or Henry Higgins, but since they were both Rex Harrison, it didn't much matter. End quote. Dr. Doolittle has realized that he's more comfortable with animals than humans and decides to become a veterinarian. But the one problem is that he doesn't know how to figure out what's ailing the animals who come to him. His pet parakeet, Polynesia, tells him that it's easy to learn how to speak to animals. The song begins early one morning and carries through to bedtime that night and into the next day. Harrison's vocal was performed mostly live on set, which is pretty much the only way to do his songs anyway. Matthew, think what it would mean if I could talk to the animals. Just imagine it, chatting to a chimp in chimpanzee. Imagine talking to a tiger, chatting to a cheetah. <laughs> what a neat achievement that would be. If we could talk to the animals, learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree, I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle, alligator, guinea pig and flea. I would converse in polar bear and python, and I would curse in fluent kangaroo. If people asked me, can you speak rhinoceros? I'd say, of course I Can't you? <laughs> conferred with our furry friends, man to animal. Think of the amazing repartee. If I could walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. And they could talk to me. If I consulted with quadrupeds, think what fun we'd have asking over crocodiles for tea. Or maybe lunch with two or three lions, walruses or sea lions. What a lovely place the world would be. If I spoke slang to a rangotang, the advantages, 
any fool on earth could plainly see. Discussing Eastern art and dramas with intellectual llamas, that's a big step forward, you'll agree. I'd learn to speak in antelope and turtle. My Pekingese would be extremely good. If I were asked to sing in hippopotamus, I'd say winotamus and wood. If I could parley with pachyderms, it's a fairy tale worthy of Hans Andersen or Grimm. A man who walks with the animals, talks with the animals, grunts and squeaks and squawks with the animals. This is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me, Polynesia. I can't wait to start. The song takes a break while Doolittle learns how to say good morning to a pig, a cow, and a herd of sheep. When he celebrates his new talent, the song returns, and Rex Harrison kind of sings here as the song finishes on an open plain with the good doctor surrounded by farm animals. It's incredible. It's impossible. But it's true. A man can talk to the animals. It's a miracle. In a year from now, I guarantee I'll be the marvel of the mammals Playing chess with camels No more just a boring old MD I'll study every living creature's language So I can speak to all of them on sight If friends say, can he talk in crab or pelican? You'll say like helica And you'll be right And if you just stop to think a bit There's no doubt of it I shall win a place in history I can walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. And they can squeak and squawk and speak and talk to me. I've neglected to mention a lot of the critics' reviews of many of these movies over the past episodes, unless the reviews mention the songs, which they almost never do. One critic I have been reading a lot was Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, and more often than not, I got the sense that Crowther didn't like his job, or he didn't like movies, or he just didn't like his life. He tended to bash movies that were quite good, And usually I would gloss over what he wrote if he wasn't talking about a song or any part of the film's music, because that's the point of this podcast. But I do want to mention his review of Dr. Doolittle because he does mention the music, saying it was not exceptional, and going on to say that the rendering of the songs lacks variety. He recognized that the songs, quote, sound suspiciously like some from My Fair Lady, end quote but didn't recognize the fact that Rex Harrison was the link between those two movies. For once, I agree with what Bosley Crowther wrote. It's a long film, and it feels like the filmmakers wanted to put as many stories from the original novels into one film as they could. Two or three of the adventures could have been cut without affecting the film. I would argue that Talk to the Animals was the right choice for the Oscar nomination, even though I do wonder what the musical could have been if Anthony Newley had been allowed to collaborate on the songs. Sammy Davis Jr. was originally hired to play the chief of an island where the mysterious pink sea snail lives. Rex Harrison didn't want to work with Sammy Davis Jr., 
so the producers lobbied for Sidney Poitier. Poitier was let go when his role was significantly reduced, and Jeffrey Holder took the role. Sammy Davis Jr. apparently held no grudges, as he released a popular album where he performed all the songs from the movie, including Talk to the Animals. This version is definitely sung through with added lyrics, and shows how different the song is when it's sung and not spoken. The lyric rhymes are much easier to admire here. Whoa, if I could talk to the animals Just imagine it, chatting with a chimp and chimpanzee Imagine talking to a tiger, chatting with a cheetah What a neat achievement it would be If we could talk to the animals And learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle Alligator, guinea pig and flea I would converse in polar bear and python I would curse in fluent kangaroo It'd be blasphemy, can you speak rhinoceros? I'd say of cosserous, can't you? Furry friends, man to animal, think of the amazing repartee. If I could walk with the animals and talk with the animals, grunt, squeak, and squawk with the animals, and Lord, they could talk to me. Think what fun we'd have asking over crocodiles for tea Or maybe lunch with two or three lions, walruses and sea lions What a lovely place the world would be If I spoke slang to orangutan, all oh, the advantages any fool on earth can plainly see Disgusting eastern art and dramas with intellectual llamas That's a big step forward, you'll agree I'd learn to speak in antelope and turtle my Pekingese would be extremely good If I were asked to sing in hippopotamus I'd say why not a must And I would If you stop and think of it There's no doubt of it I could win a place in history If I could walk with the animals And talk with the animals Grunt, squeak, squawk with the animals And they could squeak And squawk And speak Brickus's rhymes in Talk to the Animals hint at an homage to his favorite songwriters, including Cole Porter, whom he once met in 1962, and George Gershwin. Sammy Davis Jr. had a long friendship with Leslie Brickus dating back to 1961, when Davis was doing a one-man show in London at the same time Brickus's show Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, was a smash hit. Davis took Brickus and Anthony Newley under his wing, and Davis made the hit song What Kind of Fool Am I from Stop the World 
into a bigger hit. So when Davis asked to do his own versions of the Dr. Doolittle songs, Brickus was quick to say yes. So from a movie about a man's relationship with wild animals to a movie about a boy's relationship with wild animals. This movie is The Jungle Book, the animated musical that would turn out to be the last film that Walt Disney would see completed before his death in December 1966. His studio was working on two other films at the time, but The Jungle Book was Disney's pet project before he died of lung cancer. His studio had released five animated musicals since the last Disney song was nominated, which was Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo from 1950's Cinderella. In the meantime, such songs as You Can Fly from Peter Pan, Once Upon a Dream from Sleeping Beauty, and Cruella de Vil from 101 Dalmatians were denied nominations as the Academy seemed to shift away from recognizing original musicals. In The Jungle Book, the nominated song is performed by the bear Baloo after encountering the boy Mowgli in the jungle. Mowgli has been deserted by the panther Bagheera after the two have a fight, and Baloo promises to take care of the boy by showing him how to survive in the jungle. The song they sing together, called The Bear Necessities, encompasses Baloo educating Mowgli in the finer things in life, including letting nature do the work for them. All you gotta do is look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. You eat ants? <laughs> you better believe it. And you're going to love the way they tickle. <laughs> Mowgli, look out! The bare necessities of life will come to you. But where? They'll come to you. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities. That's why a bear can rest at ease with just the bare necessities of life. Now, when you pick a pawpaw or a prickly pear, and you prick a raw paw, well, next time, beware. Don't pick the prickly pear by the paw. When you pick a pear, try to use the claw. But you don't need to use the claw when you pick a pair of the big paw paw. Have I given you a clue? Golly, thanks, Blue. Paw paw. Of all the silly gibberish. Come on, Daggy, get with the beat. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to me. They'll come to you. How about scratching that old left shoulder while you're up there, Mowgli? No, just a hair lower. There. Right there. That's it. Oh, this is beautiful. Oh, that's good. Kid, we've got to get to a tree. This calls for some big scratch. <laughs> right on it. Yeah. That's delicious. Oh. Oh. A little bit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. 
this is really living. So just try and relax. Yeah, cool it. Fall apart in my backyard. Because let me tell you something, little wretches. If you act like that bee act, uh-uh, you're working too hard. And don't spend your time looking around for something you want that can't be found. When you find out you can live without it and go along not thinking about it, I'll tell you something true. The bare necessities of life will come to you. I give up. Well, I hope his luck holds out. Mowgli, how about you, say? Look, Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean, the bare necessities, that's why a bear can rest at ease. With just the bare necessities of life. Yeah, with just the bare necessities of life. When Mowgli decides to live in the man village after encountering a young girl at the end of the movie, Baloo and Bagheera decide to head back to the jungle together with a quick reprise of The Bear Necessities. Well, come on, Baggy Buddy. Let's get back to where we belong and get with the beat. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities, all Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. The writer of The Bare Necessities, Terry Gilkison, was a popular folk singer and songwriter in the 1950s, creating such songs as On Top of Old Smokey in 1951. In 1960, he was hired at Disney specifically to write music for the TV show The Wonderful World of Disney. Gilkison wrote The Bare Necessities and six other songs near the beginning of production of The Jungle Book in 1964 but he and original screenwriter Bill Peet were fired after a year because Walt Disney did not like the dark direction they were going. After the success of Mary Poppins, Disney hired the two men he called The Boys, Richard and Robert Sherman, to write a new song score for a more upbeat and lighter film that almost completely threw away any of Rudyard Kipling's stories. As the project neared completion, It was obvious that one of Gilkison's songs was still relevant, and everyone agreed to keep it in the movie. To the detriment of the Sherman Brothers, it was that song, The Bare Necessities, that gained an Oscar nomination. When you watch the movie, you can feel that The Bare Necessities is not a Sherman Brothers song. It feels different from the other songs in the film, both in style and in tone. The songs that the Shermans wrote are wonderful, though, including the song for the vultures. That's what friends are for. Just as a quick aside, the vultures were supposed to be voiced by the Beatles, but they refused to do it. 
and the Shermans had to scrap the song they planned for them to sing. It's never been performed, so I don't know what that song is. But it probably wouldn't have been anything close to That's Word for Enter 4, which is written for a barbershop quartet. We're your friends. We're your friends. We're your friends to the bitter end. The bitter end. When you're alone. When you're alone. Who comes around? Who comes around? To pluck. You are to pluck you up when you are down. When you are down, and when you're outside looking in, who's there to open the door? That's, That's what friends are for. Who's always eager? to extend a friendly claw that's what friends are for and when you're lost in dire need who's at your side at lightning speed we're friends with every creature coming down the pike in fact we've never met an animal we didn't like So you can see we're friends, we're friends indeed, and friends indeed, and friends indeed, are friends indeed. We'll keep you safe in the jungle forevermore. That's what friends are for. Of the five nominees from 1967, The Look of Love was the only Oscar-nominated song to find much of a life outside the movies. While it was on its way down in November 1967 after peaking at number 22, another movie song that didn't capture the attention of Oscar voters was enjoying a full month at the number one spot. Sidney Poitier was very busy in 1967 with three movies on the docket. Two of them, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night, were nominated for Best Picture, while the other one, To Serve with Love, received zero nominations. And Poitier did not receive an Oscar nomination for any of his work that year, which is quite frankly unforgivable. Poitier's big movie of 1967 was In the Heat of the Night, where he played a Philadelphia cop in Mississippi fighting racism while investigating a murder. And it has one of the best lines ever uttered in a movie. Be sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs, take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now. It's a shame he didn't get an Oscar nomination for that line reading alone. In the Heat of the Night earned seven Academy Award nominations, but it couldn't wrangle up one for the title song which would have given Quincy Jones two song nominations in 1967. He was responsible for writing the score for In the Heat of the Night, 
and director Norman Jewison felt that a song was needed to play over the opening titles to set the mood of the film. The result is a song with a heavy gospel feel, perfect for a film set in the Deep South. The exposure and popularity of In the Heat of the Night helped the music branch take notice of the title song, and it made the list of the 10 songs that survived the preliminary nomination voting. Not enough to be the eighth Oscar nomination for this movie that would eventually be named Best Picture. Ray Charles sings about feeling motherless, which could exemplify the feeling that Poitier feels in this strange place. In the heat of the night Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow yeah. In the heat of the night I'm feeling motherless Writing the lyrics to the song were the married couple, Alan and Marilyn Bergman. They began their career separately, but both found themselves under the wing of Johnny Mercer at the same time in the mid-1950s. Mercer convinced Alan Bergman to move from Philadelphia to Los Angeles and give a serious go at songwriting. Marilyn Keith was a protege of lyricist Bob Russell after giving up on two career paths, first as a pianist and then as an English teacher. I drifted into songwriting really by accident because I had a fall and broke my shoulder and couldn't play piano, so I started writing lyrics, Marilyn Bergman recalled in an interview she did in the early 2000s. Mercer brought Alan and Marilyn together, and the result was not only a long-lasting marriage beginning in 1958, but a hit song right off the bat. Nice and Easy was co-written with Lou Spence and recorded in 1960 by Marilyn's favorite singer at the time, Frank Sinatra. That got the Bergmans their first song on the Billboard Hot 100 with many more to follow. Their first song for the movies came in the low-budget 1964 movie The Right Approach, and for a first attempt at writing a movie song, it's decent, and like all of their colleagues, they had to start small. Director Norman Jewison suggested that the Bergmans work with Quincy Jones on the song for the end, the heat of the night, and it gave them yet another hit record. But alas, no Oscar nomination. The title song from the British film To Serve With Love is sung by up-and-coming teenage singer Lulu. Given the Academy's love of title songs in the previous years, and the fact that title songs from two British films made the list in 1966, 
It's surprising that the list from 1967 includes only one title song, Thoroughly Modern Millie. To Serve With Love would have been a popular addition, but perhaps the film's negative reviews affected the music branch's feelings about the song, which looks back fondly on Sidney Poitier's teacher from the viewpoint of a former student looking back on her life. The song was written by Mark London, who was the husband of Lulu's manager Marion Massey, and Oscar winner Don Black, who had written this song a few months after winning the Oscar for writing the lyrics to Born Free. So incensed were they about the song's omission from the Oscar nominations that Massey and director James Clavell reportedly sent a formal complaint to the Academy after the nominations were announced. Elmer Bernstein, who was one of the Academy's vice presidents at the time and a nominee that year for the score to Thoroughly Modern Millie, reportedly said the omission of To Sir With Love was the biggest mystery of all time. The song became the biggest seller of 1967, beating out I'm a Believer by the Monkees. What might have happened with To Sir With Love was a lack of clever marketing on the part of Columbia Pictures, obviously more than creating a hit record. They could have taken a cue from 20th Century Fox and their extreme marketing campaign for Dr. Doolittle. To Sir With Love was one of the most popular songs to come from a movie since Moon River, and it gave Lulu a little bump in her career. In 1969, she won the Eurovision Song Contest, and her exposure increased when she married Maurice Gibb, the lead singer of the Bee Gees, that same year. We've had a growth of original movie musicals in 1967, 
And another one that showed some promise and did quite well at the movie theaters and in the record stores was Valley of the Dolls, a musical adaptation of Jacqueline Suzanne's 1966 novel about three women struggling with drug addiction. It was initially slated to star Judy Garland, but her real-life addiction to pills caused her to be fired midway through the movie and replaced by Susan Hayward. The songs were written by the husband and wife pairing of Andre and Dory Previn, and they wrote a title song that gave Dionne Warwick a rare hit that wasn't written for her by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. She sings the song at the beginning and end of the film, her vocal expressing wonder at the circumstances that find her spiraling downward so much that she can't recognize herself. The title of the film is never mentioned in the lyrics, but it remains the title of the song.
The song sold more than a million records in spring 1968, giving Dionne Warwick a fourth straight year of earning gold records. The film itself took a while to gain attention, and it eventually became a cult classic. Maybe if the title song had become a big hit earlier in the year instead of after the Oscar nominations were announced, Valley of the Dolls might have received an Oscar nomination. There is a bit of history with the film, though. John Williams was tasked with adapting the song score in with some of his own original music and received the first of more than 50 Oscar nominations for his work. If you want to know more about John Williams, I invite you to listen to my other podcast called The Baton, A John Williams Musical Journey. So back to Andre Previn. He was probably not too upset about missing out on a nomination for the song from Valley of the Dolls. He was nominated that year for adapting the score to Thoroughly Modern Millie, bringing his nomination total to 12 from four Oscar wins. Leslie Brickus had a chance to have two songs nominated for the Academy Award in 1967. While he was working on Dr. Doolittle, Brickus was the only full-time songwriter under contract with Fox at the time, so he was asked to supply a lyric to the theme music for two movies made by the studio that year. One came from a theme written by John Williams, who was going by the name Johnny Williams in 1967. He would shorten his first name to John a few years later, but he was on his way to becoming the superstar legend that, as I mentioned earlier, would earn more than 50 Oscar nominations for music written for Steven Spielberg films, as well as the Star Wars series, among many others. Brickus and Williams worked together in 1966 for the Natalie Wood comedy Penelope, with a song that focused more on repeating the lead character's name than really having anything to say. The title song for 1967's A Guide for the Married Man wasn't much better, but it was a song that feels very much of the time with a 60s rock feel. The Beatles or the Monkees would have done well with this song. of these songs that were ignored for Oscar's consideration, the one that is the most glaring is the omission of the song Mrs. Robinson from the movie The Graduate. Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel wrote and sang the song at the height of their careers, 
and when it appeared in the movie starring Anne Bancroft as Mrs. Robinson, it became their biggest hit. What's interesting about the creation of this song for The Graduate is that Paul Simon thought writing songs for the movies was, quote, selling out. But the money was tempting. After rejecting two other songs, Simon and Garfunkel reworked a tribute to Eleanor Roosevelt that they were already working on called Mrs. Roosevelt. They changed the name to Robinson, and director Mike Nichols accepted it right away. This version you're about to hear is the one used in the film. It lasts just 75 seconds and only uses lyrics from the chorus, some scatting in the early part, and an acoustic guitar. Simon and Garfunkel didn't have time to create a fully fleshed-out song in time for the film's release. Three months after the film became a hit, in April 1968, when the Oscar nominations had already been announced, the version we all know was released. It's complete with references to Joe DiMaggio, a political debate, and many other things that have nothing to do with the film. So if Mrs. Robinson was going to be considered for an Oscar nomination, the music branch only had that 75-second version to go on. It wasn't enough to convince them to put the song in the preliminary list that the music branch voted for after the first round of voting, which is a shocking result when you look at it in hindsight. 
Other songs by Simon and Garfunkel appear in the film, including the big hit Sounds of Silence, which had already been written and therefore wasn't eligible for the Oscar. In an interview done many years later, Paul Simon was asked why Mrs. Robinson didn't receive an Academy Award nomination. And Simon responded that he didn't fill out the necessary forms to make it eligible for the award. But in 1967, the Academy didn't require songwriters to complete forms to submit their songs for Oscar consideration. Producers of the film, or the production companies, were only responsible for making sure that the official screen credits form was correct. The names of the songs aren't always listed in that credits list if they are not listed on screen. So maybe the music branch thought all the Simon and Garfunkel songs were not written for the film. The full version of Mrs. Robinson won the Grammy for Record of the Year in 1969. It was the third movie song to win Record of the Year, but the first one to win a Record of the Year Grammy without a corresponding Oscar nomination. The song beat out the immensely popular Hey Jude from the Beatles and another popular song, Harper Valley PTA. So while we might hang our heads over the lack of an Oscar nomination for Simon and Garfunkel and Andre and Dory Previn and Quincy Jones, it's also a bit strange that three Oscar-winning songwriters couldn't wrangle up another nomination for themselves in 1967. Henry Mancini was the composer of the score for the Audrey Hepburn thriller Wait Until Dark, which featured Hepburn playing a blind woman caught up during a drug-smuggling scheme. Hepburn's character is married, but there isn't really a love subplot in the movie, which makes the title song perplexing. It doesn't play up to the thriller aspect of the movie either, but takes the title and turns it into a love song. In the hands of Oscar winners Henry Mancini, Ray Evans, and Jay Livingston, it's still a top-notch love song squarely fitting into the style of the late 1960s. Who cares how cold and gray the day may be? Wait until dark and we'll be warm. Our place of love is where we face our dreams together. Where our fantasies take form. When I can feel your nearness in the night, my disappointments disappear. The chillest day may bring. That seem to miss their mark But oh my darling Wait until dark That song made it into the top 10 vote-getters after the Academy's preliminary nomination voting but couldn't make it past the second round. There's a song from Dr. Doolittle, When I Look in Your Eyes, that might seem like a love song, and it made it onto the top 10 list, but I think the music branch realized that they didn't want to nominate a love song that Rex Harrison sings to a seal. When I look in your eyes, 
I see the wisdom of the world in your eyes. I see the sadness of a thousand goodbyes. When I look in your eyes, and it is no surprise to see the softness of the moon in your eyes, the gentle sparkle of the stars in the sky. When I look in your eyes. <coughs> I see the deepness of the sea. I see the deepness of the love. The love I feel you feel for me. Autumn comes, summer dies. I see the passing of the years in your eyes. And when we part, there'll be no tears. No goodbye. I'll just look into your eyes. Dear Sophie, those eyes so wise, so warm, so real. Isn't it a pity you're a seal? <laughs> When the newspaper journalists started making predictions about the winners of the 40th Academy Awards, they were divided on which song should win the Oscar. Dorothy Manners of the San Francisco Examiner picked Thoroughly Modern Millie because, quote, it's the only one I could whistle. Mel Gauntz in San Luis Obispo said, quote, toss a coin, they're all miserable, end quote. Just about everyone agreed In the Heat of the Night would win Best Picture, but I don't think anyone was on the edge of their seat wondering if Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn would earn their record fifth Oscars for songwriting. Everyone would have to wait two more days to find out the results, as the ceremony was moved from Monday, April 8, 1968, to Wednesday, April 10th, to allow the nation to continue to mourn the death of Martin Luther King, who was assassinated on April 4th. The glamour of the event was a little subdued, and Academy President Gregory Peck opened the show by paying respects to King's memory. The nominated songs were performed by some of the most popular performers of the year, but none of them sang the songs in the films. Brazilian jazz musician Sergio Mendes and his new group Brasil 66 performed The Look of Love at the ceremony, essentially introducing themselves to American audiences. That performance was widely praised, and prompted AM Records to get the group into the studio to record the song. That recording beat Dusty Springfield's version, going all the way to number four. Louis Armstrong gave the Bare Necessities a big lift when he performed on stage, as did Angela Lansbury when she trotted onto the stage with the Ronald Field Dancers to sing Thoroughly Modern Millie. Sammy Davis Jr. and his performance of Talk to the Animals got a lot of ink as well, with some critics saying his performance was better than Rex Harrison's. No real argument there. Angela Lansbury wasn't the only Broadway star to make an appearance on the Oscar stage that night. 
Barbara Streisand, who had just finished filming the adaptation of her Broadway hit Funny Girl, was there to announce the winner of the Best Song Award, probably hoping those in the audience would remember her in a year's time. Upon opening the envelope and revealing that Talk to the Animals was the winner, the reaction in the audience was mixed. It seemed like some people were happy, some were shocked. Usually, the applause for a winner is fairly immediate. But this one took a few seconds to register. While they did, Sammy Davis Jr. came out to accept for Leslie Brickus, who didn't make the journey from England. Affecting a British accent, Davis pretended to be Brickus and said, quote, It's absolutely marvelous. It's super. End quote. Brickus became just the fifth person in 34 years to write an Oscar-winning song by himself, and the first since Manos Hajidakis won for Never on Sunday seven years earlier. Despite being a money loser, Dr. Doolittle won two Oscars that night. In addition to the Song Award, the visual effects were honored with an Academy Award. Terry Gilkison marked his first and last time as an Academy Award nominee for writing The Bare Necessities. He stayed with the Disney studio for a couple more years, writing a song for the Aristocats in 1970 before retiring. And alas, no fifth Oscar for Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen. They're going to be back in 1968 to write another song for Julie Andrews, and we'll start off the next episode talking about their next songwriting venture. Quincy Jones and Bob Russell will also be in the mix of nominees for 1968, as will two relative newcomers to the songwriting business who will become very popular as we head into the 1970s. I'm sure you're anxious to find out who they are, and I'll let you know on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Thanks so much for singing along with me on this episode. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.